How are you guys doing? I'm Tyler. For those of you that I have not met yet, which is a lot of you, uh, I'm the newest member on the pastoral team here at Calvary Vista. Woo! Woo! It is such a privilege to be here. Uh, me and my wife, our kids, we already feel so welcomed, and uh, thank you for that. Tonight we're going to be in Luke chapter 7, so if you have a Bible, you can open there, Luke chapter 7. Uh, as Pastor Rob began uh, our study in 1 Corinthians, I thought about going to a gospel account that may best resemble a Corinthian. And so if you remember a couple of weeks ago in the introduction to our, our series as we're going verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians, we learned that the, the Corinthians were a people of bad reputation, right? What stays in Corinth or what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. We learned that they were immoral. They were a pagan city. We learned that there was a lot of issues going on. There was prostitution and different things happening within the city. And here in this account, we see someone that may resemble sort of a Corinthian. This woman is a woman of ill reputation reputation. She's a woman that is classified instantly as a sinner, as immoral, and she too, by trade, was a prostitute. And so we see an encounter with Jesus that may resemble maybe a person there in Corinth, but nonetheless, today we are going to look and to dive in and to lean into the grace of God. And we see this demonstrated here in this account. And I believe if our world needs anything right now, it is the grace of God. For Romans 1.16 says, it is the gospel, it's the gospel of grace that is the power of God unto salvation. And the grace of God is only found in the church. There is no other place in the world that teaches grace. That is something that is only found here. And so we are going to look into uh, this account and um, just marvel at the grace of God. So Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. I'm going to read and then we'll pray and dive into it. Does that sound good? Are you guys ready? Are you there? All right. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Let's read. Says one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him. For she is a sinner. Verse 40, And Jesus, answering to Simon, says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon answered, Say it, teacher. Jesus shares this parable here in verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, from whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? 
I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You have gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Will you pray with me? Lord, we come before you. We thank you. Lord, for your grace. We thank you that you are truly our living hope, the only hope, Father. And Lord, as we open up your word tonight, Lord, we recognize that we are so desperately in need of you. Lord, we pray, God, that you speak. We know that your word is living and powerful. So we pray, God, that you cut to our hearts. Lord, we pray that you apply your word to our lives. God, I pray for anyone in here that may be just weary, tired. Maybe their heart has grown cold from you. Lord, I pray that they will sense your presence tonight. Lord, that they will sense your grace. God, I pray that you impart grace to our ears to hear from you. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone that doesn't know you personally, Lord, I pray that you save them tonight, that they will experience the goodness of God for the first time. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. A friend recently wrote, in light of the current events, he said this. He said, this nation will meet its demise when the people in it have the absence of grace and mercy in their eyes. Grace and mercy. It is something that we, the church, we, we have that. We have been given grace and mercy from Christ. Nowhere in the world is grace Available. Every worldview, every ideology, every world religion, they do not teach grace. They say you need to try harder, you need to work harder, you need to do better, you need to do more, and maybe, just maybe, you'll experience the life that you're supposed to live, your best life. Maybe, just maybe, if you do enough things, then, you know, things will work out for you. Maybe, just maybe, if you're morally good enough, then you'll have an encounter with God. But the Bible doesn't speak of such things. The Bible teaches us grace, that we could not deserve it, that we could not earn it, that we don't have to work our way up to God, but that God has worked his way down to us, born as a man in a manger, lived the perfect life we couldn't, died upon the cross in our place, and he's alive today. It's grace, and it's found nowhere else in the world except for the church. And I believe that in this time, we need to be looking to the world and looking to one another with a lens and eyes of grace. We see Jesus do that here in this account. We have a simple outline tonight. Number one, God's grace toward the sinner. And number two, God's grace toward Simon. Very simple. God's grace is extended to both of them. God's grace toward the sinner and God's grace toward Simon. Let's dive and look at the setting, what's going on. We read that Jesus, he's welcomed in. He's actually invited into Simon the Pharisee's house. We're told that he comes on in in verse 36 and he reclines at the table. Now, for us to read over this, 
we, we can get a bit desensitized, those of us that have been reading the Bible for a while, and we can really miss out how shocking and how scandalous what is going on in this account. What happens is Jesus comes in into the house. Generally, the oriental custom of that time was that the guests would be greeted with a holy kiss on each cheek, and then there would be ointment that would be poured upon or oil poured upon the head for refreshment, and then a servant would come and would wash the feet after the journey over there. Jesus is denied this simple custom. This would have been rude and offensive if we were denied these things. It was like we're invited to someone's house and they just left the door open. They didn't say hello. We just kind of come on in. Do we sit down? What do we do? But Jesus, he graciously comes in. He reclines at the table. He's not offended. He sits down. And then this woman comes in. And we read there in verse 37, it says, And behold, a woman of the city. Now that word behold, it has this idea. Everyone just turned their heads. You imagine that someone just interrupts the service right now, comes in screaming and yelling. We'd all behold. We'd all look over. We would see who's coming in. What's this ruckus about? That's exactly what's going on here. Now, to get an idea, the way that houses were set up at this, this time is that the houses were kind of like this, kind of like this Spanish style house with a courtyard in the middle. And when guests would come over, they would leave the gate open so that onlookers could peer in and see who's there there and kind of eavesdrop on the conversation. And so as Jesus comes in, he's denied this regular custom. He comes in, he sits down, he's leaning down, and they would sit down on their side on this, this, this short table, and his feet would be kind of faced toward the gate. And there's this, seems as there's this crowd that's circulating. By this time, Jesus is, is very popular. His ministry has kind of exploded, and people know who he is. And so it seems as if there's multiple people outside there. And this woman, she comes in, and she interrupts. She has the audacity to interrupt this man's dinner. Now, Simon, he's a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the set-apart ones. They wanted nothing to do with sinners whatsoever. If they sinner touched them, they would be unclean. They would have to go through ceremonial washing. It was this whole ordeal. And so they were the set-apart ones. For this woman to come in here, it was completely, completely scandalous alone in just that. I almost imagine... By this time, Jesus is popular. There's like a camera crew just going around, following Jesus' every move. And, you know, the headlines, Jesus feeds 5,000. Look how generous he is. Jesus heals the leper. But then this event happens. Oh man, this would have been detrimental to his ministry. The news headlines the next morning, it would have been the scandal. But no, look what happens here. How Jesus extends grace toward this sinner. We're told that she comes in and she's a woman of the city who is a sinner, which has this connotation, this idea that she is a prostitute by trade. And she comes in, she learns that Jesus is there and she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now this would have made everyone watching extremely uncomfortable. She comes in, she interrupts a Pharisee's dinner. That was a big no-no. That was not allowed. She comes in 
And first she gets this ointment, most likely her dowry that she would save for her wedding. And she cracks this thing open and she pours it not on Jesus's head, but humbly at his feet. Remember, the feet are behind him. So she's coming from behind him, pouring it out upon his feet. And then she begins to cry hysterically. This this word here in the Greek, it has this idea of hysterical. And, And we read Jesus himself say to Simon that she hasn't ceased to stop crying and kissing my feet. She's crying. It's loud. In fact, the word can be defined as, this word for crying is, bewail aloud. I mean, this was hysterical crying. And she's weeping there. There's so many tears that what she does is she let down her hair and begins to clean his feet with her hair. Now, this was huge. This would have been like, this would have been the icing on the cake. They would have been, oh, I can't believe she did this. Because according to the Talmud and the oral tradition in which the Pharisees upheld and they helped enforce, that was grounds for divorce. Now, we don't know and and we wouldn't suggest that this woman was pretty, that she was married. But this would have been scandalous. This was a very provocative gesture she's doing to Jesus. But she's in desperation. She lets down his hair and she's literally using her hair to wash his feet. Now, I've got two young kids. I've got a two-year-old and a seven-month-old, and they are the cutest things. I can kiss them all over the place, but their feet are already stinky. I mean, you get one day, they're out there, and they're already kind of getting stinky. Imagine Eastern culture. I mean, they're wearing sandals. They're walking everywhere. These, these feet, I mean, this is Jesus in human flesh, but he is human. These feet were dirty. And she's using her hair, which was a sign of their glory. This was their glory. They wouldn't let this down for someone. Except she was a prostitute. uh, Maybe she would have used it in her trade. But she lets down her hair, her glory, to wipe off his feet. Then she begins to kiss them repetitively, not ceasing to kiss his feet until until she has come in. I mean, this itself, you remember that oriental custom that Jesus was denied. She comes in and she fills in the gap saying Jesus is worthy for that custom. Jesus is worthy to be treated with the utmost respect. And as she's doing this, we see Jesus doesn't kick her away. He doesn't shoo her off. He doesn't stop her, but he extends grace toward her. It's important to note that if you put the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you put them chronologically or in harmony, the last teaching of Jesus, he would say the words, come to me, all who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. It seems as if this woman has definitely heard of Jesus. Maybe she heard those very words that are spoken there in Galilee. She would have heard these words, the Spirit of God convicting her of her sin. Her needing that grace. And we see that she comes in in this demonstration and an act of love and worship because she has been forgiven. Remember in that parable, he'll go on to say, he who is forgiven much loves much. She recognized the forgiveness already. We don't know what happened. We don't know if it was during that teaching, but something had happened in which she is now coming and she is demonstrating her gratitude toward Jesus at this dinner. And Jesus doesn't shoo her away. He's right there. I think it's important to note that grace can be a funny thing even in the church. Outside of the church, the world doesn't know grace. But inside the church, sometimes we can get a little bit, for a lack of better words, reserved when it comes to grace. We want the grace of God at salvation. We know by grace we have been saved. But sometimes we get the idea that grace may lead to sin. And so we, 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 we can 
prevent ourselves or we can kind of be reserved in extending grace to other people because we don't want to approve of their sin. We don't want to approve of their behavior. Certainly, this is in the mind of Simon because this is what struck him. As we read, he thought there, he, he's thinking to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. But I think it's important to note that the grace of God, it does not enable sin. The grace of God empowers sin as grace or empowers the sinner. Grace of God does not enable sin. The grace of God does not tolerate sin. No, the grace of God empowers the sinner. The grace of God transforms the sinner. When we, in our state of sin, experience the grace of God, it lifts us up. It pulls us out of our our, our sin, of our shame, of our captivity, and it sets us free. This is what the grace of God does. I love how Charles Spurgeon puts it. He says this. Let me find it here in my notes. He says, it's up there on the screen, isn't it? I got it right here. I'm going to read it on my screen. I don't think I put it. Oh, no, there it is. Okay, it says, Grace doesn't smuggle men into heaven, but brings them up to heaven's requirements through the Spirit and the blood. That's what grace does. Grace doesn't enable sin. It doesn't tolerate sin. It transforms and it empowers the sinner. That's what our world needs right now. There's a lot of sin. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of issues going on. And the antidote in which Christ gives is his grace. And his grace, it doesn't smuggle people into heaven. No, it lifts them up into heavenly places. What we could not do, Christ has done. When we were unfaithful, he is faithful. This is what God God's grace does. It is powerful. It doesn't smuggle us in. It lifts us up by His Spirit and by His blood. God's grace empowers the sinner. It's the message of the cross. Grace, 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 grace. Romans 8, 3 says in the NLT version, it says, The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body, like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. What the law could not do, all the law could do is expose our sin. There there you have Pharisee, Simon the Pharisee. I mean, he is a man that knows the law. In order to be a Pharisee, they would have the first five books of the Bible at least memorized. They could pick it up. Someone could quote a verse, Deuteronomy 4.3. They could pick up Deuteronomy 4.4. They knew the word that well. They knew the law, but it had no power to save them. And here comes Christ, the covenant of grace, the power of God's grace. And he comes and it is able to lift us up. And put us into heavenly places. It is able to save the sinner. The second point we want to see is that God's grace towards Simon. You see, as Simon is there, everyone's uncomfortable at this this intense scene. This act of, of love and this demonstration of worship and devotion. Simon is there and he's completely offended. How could this woman do this? How could she come in? And, and if Jesus was a prophet, then he would know what kind of woman this is. She wouldn't be allowed in here. We're not allowed to hang out with people like these, but we see God. We see Christ's grace towards Simon himself. Simon's there. 
bewildered, awestruck, frustrated, uncomfortable. And he's there and Jesus looks to him. And he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Jesus answered, say it. Or he answered to Jesus, say it, teacher. And Jesus shares this parable. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. So one owed 10 times the amount. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. Notice Jesus' tone. I love it. You can almost read it here in the text. It's one of grace. It's where he's looking in here. And he looks at Simon, who's so cold toward the situation. So critical. So analytical. And Jesus looks at him and he exposes Simon's sin. He gives this parable. There's two that owe a debt. Now one is more than the other. But notice he says it is a debt that neither of them could pay. You see, Simon... He had a debt that he couldn't pay. He just didn't know it. His self-righteousness and his pride blinded him from his need for forgiveness. He didn't see it. All he could see was the sin of the woman. And I think there's a great point of application there for us in this time that we're living in right now. In a time when, when so many are divided and that division can try to creep into the church To be careful not to look at the sin of someone else before we allow Christ to take the log out of our own eye, right? To where we allow Jesus to work in our heart first. Simon, Simon doesn't do this. Simon doesn't see it. In fact, I suggest to you, as many have, that this parable has to do more about the awareness of sin than the amount of sin. You see, this woman was aware that she was a sinner. She was a woman of ill repute, a bad reputation, Her trade, she knew what she'd done. She knew she was a sinner. She knew she had this great debt that she could not pay. And when she heard the message of the cross, when she heard the message of forgiveness, when she saw the grace in the eyes of Jesus, man, it led to love. Love that that she had to display. A, A warm heart you can see affectionately poured out at the feet of Jesus here. But Simon's completely blinded. He's completely blinded that he too is a sinner. We know Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We know that none are righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Simon didn't understand this. Simon didn't see in his own heart. Morally, he had everything right. But as Jesus would later say, they were just whitewashed tombs. He didn't see it. It reminds me of... uh, a time when I was a lifeguard. Before I came into the ministry full-time, I was a lifeguard up in the Central Coast at this uh, beach called Halama Beach. And Halama, it's got some bigger surf. It's got some intense rip currents. And there was this one summer where uh, we had a couple rescues back-to-back. And we had this one rescue where there was this family. It was, it was uh, the four or three people. It was three people all stuck in a rip current together. And I had to go out there and rescue them. And they were just completely panicked. They were hysterical. They were just, they, they were from inland. They didn't have much experience in the ocean. And they were aware of how dangerous the situation was. And they're just freaking out. And so we go out there, we rescue them. They're so appreciative when we got back on the beach. I mean, they were just, oh, thank you, thank you, buying us food at the store and and just they were just loving on us because they knew how dangerous 
dangerous that situation was. A couple weeks fast forward, it's actually July 4th weekend, and July 4th weekend, crazy at the beach, right? And there's all these people that are, that are drinking. These two guys go out, and they're in the water, and they're drunk, and they're in this big rip current. And I go out there. I see that they're stuck out there. They're not going anywhere. And I, I, I swim out there, and I meet them in the water. I said, hey, you know, you guys are stuck, stuck in a rip current. Can I, can I bring you back into shore? And they were offended. They're like, no, I'm fine. You know, that's, uh, leave me alone. You know, these are two grown men. And, and I'm like, okay, you know, I'm just going to wait here till you come in then because you're in a really strong rip. The surf is like six to seven feet. This is not a good situation. And what happens is they start trying to swim in and, and they couldn't get there. And finally, reluctantly, they allow me to bring them in. And we get into shore and they're almost embarrassed. And, and they're just, their, their drunkenness had blinded them from the danger of this situation. And it's the same thing here with Simon. He's so drunk on pride and self-righteousness that he's blinded from how dangerous his situation is. He's completely blinded to it. But this woman, she knew. This woman, she knew. She was desperate. She knew the dangerous condition that she was in. And so when she experienced forgiveness, when it was offered to her free of charge, she didn't have to earn it. She didn't need to do anything to deserve it. Man, the appreciation that welled up in her, she couldn't stop herself from just loving on Jesus and pouring it out upon him. But Simon Simon's completely blinded. And I think we can, we can get a really solid truth from this. And that is that a small view of our sin will always result in a small view of our Savior. A small view of our sin will always result in a small view of our Savior. You see, he had a small view of his sin. He thought he only, you know, 50 denarii. That's it. Even though he couldn't pay it, as the parable says, you know, at least I'm not as bad as that person over there. He had a small view of it. I think this is one of the, the, the great problems that we as a church can face sometimes. We can get under the idea or the impression that we're good now. We're good. We got it all together. No. The same grace that saved us is the same grace that sustains us. We're not good. We need his grace. We need his spirit. Apart from him, we are nothing. But a small view of our sin will always result in a small view of our Savior. If we don't really recognize how dangerous the condition we're in, we're drunk, intoxicated off of some sin, whatever it may be, and we're blinded, then our appreciation for Jesus, oh, and this can happen to us. Our hearts can grow cold. Our hearts can grow cold in moments where we begin to rely on ourselves. We begin to trust in our own strengths rather than looking to Christ and leaning on him and trusting in him and, and just allowing his spirit to empower us. But when we have a greater awareness of our sin, we have a deeper appreciation of our Savior. One who is forgiven much loves much. It is the cure for a cold heart. Now all of us in our Christian walk as we're walking with the Lord, we will experience a coldness in the heart, a distancing in the heart. There's moments, there's seasons that that goes through. But I believe here is a great antidote to that today. If you're feeling cold, if you're feeling distant, just take a moment to pause and to reflect on Christ's forgiveness in your life. His past faithfulness through our unfaithfulness and presently, the little things that we may struggle with, the little quick temper to, to kind of talk back to someone or, 
or whatever it may be, little things that we do. And and, and we go about, oh, that wasn't that big of a deal. But man, to stop and say, man, Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that you still bless me in spite of me. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to me. When we take a moment and we pause and we reflect, we have an awareness of how much we have been forgiven. It will lead to a warmth that wells up inside of us as God's grace is imparted to us. That grace will well up and it will help us get back to that posture and that place of devotion and appreciation and adoration of Jesus and what he's done. Have you ever noticed that the moment when you first encountered the Lord and just there's this honeymoon season, everything, you're just so amazed and enthralled and there's so much passion. But so how quickly that can just kind of fade off. But we just take a moment and to pause and reflect on how much Christ continues to forgive us daily. What will happen is that warmth, that passion will begin to well back up inside of us. And we will respond in love and devotion and obedience to him. I love how Romans 5.20, the NLT version, says it this way. It says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. And here we see as Jesus deals with Simon the Pharisee, he exposes, he's using, he's using the law in a sense to expose Simon's need for forgiveness. And once we see that need for forgiveness, there we are met with his grace. It abounds all the more. You can't get a greater picture of this than at the cross. As Jesus is there being crucified for us, sin was abounded on him. Our sin, the sin of the world, was poured out upon him. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Sin abounded upon Christ at the cross and the wrath of God was poured out upon him so that we could be forgiven. So that grace would abound all the more and extend to every one of us. I'm so grateful for the grace of God. We're sin abounded. Grace abounds all the more. God's grace is that good. But Simon couldn't see it. He couldn't get to the grace part because he didn't see the sin part. He didn't see the sin in his own life. He was blinded to it. And so he never got to the grace part. He never encounters God's grace because he didn't first recognize his own sin. Romans 6, 1 continues and says, in the NLT, I love it again, how it says, it says, well, then should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Don't misunderstand the grace of God. It doesn't tolerate sin. It does not enable sin. What it does is it empowers the sinner. It transforms the sinner. It says, of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? The person who truly experienced the grace of God. This is a test. You want to know if someone has truly experienced the grace of God. They will begin to sin less. They won't be sinless. But they will begin to sin less. They will have a heart for obedience. It is what the grace of God does. The grace of God produces holiness in our life. It is His grace and His grace alone that is able to produce that desire to be obedient to Him. Since we have died to sin, how could we continue to live in it? Grace doesn't give us a license to sin. Grace liberates us from the power of sin. 
It's what it does. God's grace is that good. It brings us up out of that bondage. It breaks the chains, as we sing tonight, of that sin. And it sets us free from sin. Not to sin, but from sin. It is for freedom that we've been set free. Free from the bondage of sin. This is how good the grace of God is. And this is the grace that we need in our lives to help navigate this difficult time that we're living in. This is the grace that we need to extend to one another. And this is the grace that the world needs to hear because they will not hear it from anyone else but us. It's not found anywhere else but in the gospel message of, the Christ, of, of, of Jesus Christ. It is found nowhere else. God's grace. Again, another great quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, men rail at grace sometimes as though it were opposed to morality. This is what Simon the Pharisee was doing. He was offended of God's grace toward the sinner. He was, he was uncomfortable at what's going on. But it's not opposed to morality. Indeed, there is no real holiness in the sight of God except that which grace creates and which grace sustains. True holiness, true obedience to Christ, it is only found in God's grace. It is God's grace that produces it. We need God's grace in, in salvation and justification, but we need God's grace in sanctification as we continue to live and allow God to save us from our sin. This is a continual process that God continues to do in saving us as we are walking with the Lord. And until we go into glory and eternity with him, we must rely on his grace. It is found nowhere else but in the church of Christ. So today, it's a real simple message. The grace that is extended to the sinner is extended to Simon the self-righteous and it's extended to us tonight. It's a grace that we needed for salvation. And it's grace that we need every single day to sustain us. And notice what grace does here at the end. He says this to the woman. He looks back at her. And as they're being critical, analytical, who is this who even forgives sins? In verse 50, we read, he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Grace, when we encounter, will always leave us with peace. Paul, over and over again in his epistles, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. Notice the order, very important. Grace is always first. You will never experience the peace of God and peace with God until you first experience the grace of God. If you're here tonight, you're worried. You're here tonight and and you're stressed, you're weary, you're carrying heavy burdens. Drink from the goblet of God's grace. Drink from it. And go in peace. It leaves us in peace knowing we don't need to know all the answers. We don't need to hold our worlds and make sure everything's in control. We don't need to make sure everything's put together properly. We can allow God and lean on him and his grace to sustain us, to strengthen us, to support us, to empower us, to enable us. And we can just rest in his peace that the grace of God offers. And with that, let's close tonight. I want to close with an invitation, though. Anyone that may be in this room, anyone that's watching online, I want to extend that invitation of grace to you. So if you would bow with me, close your head, close, close your eyes. Lord, if we come before you, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your 
peace, Lord, that comes from your grace. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you empower us. We thank you, Lord, we don't have to have it all together. Lord, I pray for anyone tonight that may not know that grace. Maybe they've been blinded by their own sin. Maybe they've been trying to relate to you on the basis of the law. Lord, you love them. You have died for them. You have done what they could not do. Lord, you have made a way when there was no other way. Lord, our sin demanded death and you died in our place so that we could experience life. And as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if that's you, you're in this room, you're watching online, I want to extend that invitation to you. If you're here and you're in need of grace, you're watching online and you're in need of grace, just raise up your hand today and say, that's me. I need God's grace. I need this forgiveness. I'm tired. I'm weary. And I need you, Lord. If that's you, raise up your hand in a posture and in attitude. God bless you. Of saying, God, I need you. He sees you. And put your hand down. If you've never walked with the Lord before, this is the beginning. You're tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. I want to lead you in the prayer. And this prayer does not save you. Your hand does not save you. It is God who has saved you and in Him alone. But I want to lead you in this prayer as an echo of what God's doing in your heart. If that's you, just say, Dear Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe that you died in my place. And I believe that you are alive today. I need your grace. I receive your grace. Lord, I give you my life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.